Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora, and I will be your host. Today, I'm speaking with Mr. Amara Alwitri, a consultant ophthalmologist with a special interest in cataract and glaucoma. And today we'll be talking about medical legal issues and how to stay out of trouble. Amara, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Um, you know, just before we talk about the really interesting topic that we're going to talk about, could you just tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Hi, it's a great privilege to be invited to talk here. Um, I work in Nottingham and the East Midlands. I came into medical legal work really at a very, very early stage in my career. One of my early jobs, one of the consultants ran into some problems with a medical legal issue. And so I was involved in that and I wrote a report, even though I didn't know very, very much. I, 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 I submitted a statement and then after that, I got more and more interested in it. I wanted to look at it more. And that's when I really started get, getting the bug. And I went and did a master's in medical law during my training, which was quite a, a challenging thing, thing to do. And ever since then, I've really been doing more and more medical legal work. And I've got an avid interest in it. And part of my interest is in education as well. And that's why I'm, I'm really grateful for you to put this blog up about the um, medical legal issues. Medical legal master sounds really interesting. How did you get into that and where did you do that? It was actually a distance learning course and it wasn't overly onerous. It did take a lot of time. This was before I had children, so I had a bit more time. I would never be able to do it now with, 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 with children. It was a distance learning course from, um, from Glasgow University. Um, we had, I had to go up for one weekend every month in order to have a residential session whereby we had proper lectures. But apart from that, it was all done by distance learning and essays. Um, it did cost a bit of money, but I thought it was well, well worth it. It took about two years to do, so it's nothing to un undertake lightly, but I did found it, find it in invaluable. And part of being an expert is being able to justify that you are an expert. And I think having a background like that and having training like that is pretty vital. How do you find being a medical legal expert in court cases? It's really interesting. You're like a detective. You have to go through and see where things have gone right and where things have gone wrong. You've got to be cautious about being overcritical because, you know, we, we're all human. So we make errors and mistakes. I'm also very, very cognitive of the fact that I'm, you know, that there are human beings at the end of this which is not just the patients, but also the consultants and the clinicians. And it's very stressful to have litigation against you. And it's not nice to receive criticism. So, you know, I'm always conscious of that. It, being in a courtroom is very, very difficult. And, in, and, and people who are medical legal experts who have faced it, they'll understand the stresses. We're, we're used to being the captain of the ship as a consultant. But actually, when you're in a courtroom, it's the judge who's the captain of the, of the ship. And I've faced quite strong criticism from, from judges when they didn't believe what, what, what I said. And they, they sort of robustly challenge you. It's a very stressful situation. It's nothing to undertake lightly because actually medical legal experts can find themselves in front of the GMC if they don't do, do, do things properly. So anybody who's undertaking this role has to be serious about it, has to do their due diligence and, and work very hard to make sure they're doing the best for the court, really, it swaps from being doing the best for the patient, which we do day in, day out, to doing the best thing for the court and justice. And ultimately, we're all there there about justice, regardless of which side you're instructed by. It's the court you are obliged to, to, to support in their decision making. Going slightly off topic, going to court and seeing some of these cases, I think sounds really interesting and you know, potentially a really valuable learning point for doctors to be able to see what actually happens in court when they're being challenged about 
complications or errors that have happened. Are these cases recorded or and can people go in and watch them? No, no, they're not recorded. There, there, there is a vogue for the criminal cases to be public, uh, you know, recorded. But at the moment, they're, they're not. And it sounds interesting, but actually you end up sitting in a waiting room for most of the day and you're only invited in for your testimony, which is only about sort of 15, 20 minutes or so. So it's most of the day of boredom and 20 minutes of terror. So it's not as exciting <laughs> as it sounds. But one of my big things is learning from litigation. And these court cases, we can learn from litigation, but only the very, very, very minority of cases get that far. And so I worry that we're missing a lot of learning points before we actually get get to court because these cases settle out of court and then nobody knows about them. Okay, well, I mean, you must have seen loads of cases and I'm sure they're kind of similar learning points from many of the cases. You know, what, what do you think would be the biggest take-home messages that you've learned and apply to your own practice? One of my, I mean, there's, there's lots of things that I learn and, 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 and remind me about how to, how to work. Um, a lot of it is stuff that I think that we can learn very, very easily and things that we need reminding about. Um, I've had a couple of cases of giant cell arthritis whereby patients have presented with head pain and intermittent ocular features such as intermittent diplopia and intermittent blood blood vision being examined and it was and they were entirely normal and then sent away and came back blind a few weeks later it's a heartbreaking thing to see and it happens time and time time again i think one of the issues that i keep on raising is that we tend to learn in silos and when those cases happen i see the root cause analysis i see the critical incident report i see the actions taken and the actions are usually educate the trainees and educate the frontline clinicians so it's discussed at a Friday afternoon teaching session. But then heartbreakingly, the same thing happens down the road in a different trust. And I do think we need to be, if it's worth learning from locally, then I do think it's worth learning from on a wider basis. And I think we could do do that better. But those sort of learning points, if somebody presents with head pain of whatever cause and intermittent visual symptoms, do a CRP test and that will save people and their vision. And these are simple interventions and simple reminders that, that we, we, we can do in somebody with a contact lens, a, a, a contact lens wearer who's diagnosed with herpes simplex keratitis. It's probably not. And so you need to, you, you need to think of acanthamoeba and still acanthamoeba is being um, misdiagnosed and being delayed. So simple things like that. It's often the frontline clinicians who are often the trainees uh, the middle grades who sit in casualty, who see multiple patients at a fast rate, who fall foul of these issues. And I think that sometimes reminding them of this stuff would be very, very valuable. Is the fact that sometimes trainees or middle grade or any, any optimal just seeing such a high volume of patients and is so busy, is that ever a defence in court? It's never a defence, sadly. The court doesn't really care if you're super busy. busy. It doesn't really care about your environment. Uh, that was really highlighted by the Babawa Garba case, where, whereby the trust admitted that there were several failings and made dozens of changes in practice to prevent the same thing happening again, but it was not taken into account when she was found guilty of, of um, negligent manslaughter. So the court doesn't really care about that. And the argument would be is that if you felt that you were working in unsafe practice, you shouldn't have been working or you should have changed it. And this is why it is important to highlight when you are concerned about the safety of patients. And it's important to raise these issues, but it's not an excuse, sadly. 
And you just need to mm. make sure that you're doing the very, very best for the patient and accept that we are going to yeah. make mistakes. We have, a, uh, we have a system which is under strain. Sadly, we are going to make mistakes, but we need to put safety nets in place and procedures in place so that if mistakes happen, the harm to the patient is minimised. And that is our duty of care. We work in a stressed environment, busy clinics, busy theatre sessions, but just have in place systems whereby we can protect patients. And if it looks like patients are going to come to harm, make sure that the patient is is protected as best we can to minimise that harm. You know, from your experience of seeing all the cases that you see, do you think that clinicians using electronic medical records helps to keep doctors out of trouble? Or do you think sometimes it can be a hindrance? It's a blessing and a hindrance. I see lots of cases whereby it's used and the documentation is not as good as it could be if we were writing things and drawing pictures, certainly certainly corneal ulcers and things like that, documentation of retinal tears and things are not so good on the electronic patient record compared to handwriting. We are criticised for our handwriting anyway and it's not very neat. So on the flip side, the electronic patient record helps from that perspective. If we get lazy with the electronic patient record, it can cause major problems and there are lots of tick boxes. And if you don't tick the box, you're deemed to have not examined it. So if you're seeing somebody who, let's say for their glaucoma and they happen to be a contact lens wearer and then they present a day later with a corneal problem and you haven't ticked the cornea box saying call cornea okay, then you can be deemed to be negligent because you didn't bother examining the cornea. Well, actually you did, but the court could interpret it as not having been done because the box wasn't ticked. There's also issues about photography and documentation and um, and digital imaging. I think digital imaging is is vital and it's and it's fantastic, but it can also cause us problems if it's not properly examined and properly scrutinised. We're all well well aware of the Honey Rose case, whereby the imaging of the optic discs was was not looked at properly and showed frank papilledema. And if that had been looked at properly, then the the sad events wouldn't have occurred and the child wouldn't potentially wouldn't have died. So as long as these images are looked at properly, as long as there are safety nets in place to make sure that they're looked at properly and actioned, then I'm happy with the patient record. If you do a good job, if you look at the patient record and if you document things properly, then I think you're safe. But it can highlight flawed practice quite easily, so be, be cautious about it. Hmm. You know, when I was an FY2 doctor and I was doing a GP training post, it was really drilled into me about the importance of really clear documentation, especially, you know, talking about the safety net advice that I've been giving to the patient. Do you have any specific advice about what things to include and what not to include and how to stay out of trouble with regards to documentation? Safety netting is a, a really, really important point, And I'm really pleased, pleased you raised it because it's coming more and more as an allegation of negligence, failure to safety net. And not only do you need to safety net, but you need to document your safety netting and make sure there's an appropriate pathway for the patient to make contact again if they need to, to highlight issues. So if you're going to set safety net, typically people write things like SOS or see if problems and, 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 and things like that. But I think nowadays we need to be a bit more clear about that. If vision goes down, call eye casualty. If flashing lights or floaters, call eye casualty if vision deteriorates and goes more blurry, go to optometrist and things like that. So a bit more detail. We spoke earlier about the experience in court and one of my early experiences in court was that I said to a judge, you would expect that if the patient's vision went down, she would make contact with us. And that did not go down well mm. at all because actually it's not 
the patient's job to highlight these things, it's our job. And if we haven't educated the patient well enough so that they know that if the vision goes down, they should make contact, then actually that's a mm. breach on our part. It's a kind of assumption which we make that if the vision goes down, they should report it. But if they've just been seen the week, the, 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 the week before and everything was fine and they had a reassuring doctor who said everything's okay, then they may not recognise the importance of the vision going down and assume that it's just a transient thing. So it's absolutely vital we do that. So safety netting is really, really, really important. Contemporaneous documentation is vital and that is what the court will go on. In, in its absence, they, they have to make a judgment on who's telling the truth. And almost inevitably, it's going to be the patient. We have to appreciate that we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients. We can't recall every single patient. But for the patient, this incident or this occurrence is the most important thing in their life at the moment. And they will recall every single little thing. They'll be very emotive. And the way the brain can play tricks on you is that they can not quite confabulate, but they can they can put nuances on things that actually weren't there. So contemporaneous notes that's the best way to defend yourself and part and parcel of this is that we talk talk about how to protect yourself and really documentation is key we can't we are we're terrible at handwriting we're terrible at documenting things and in the vast majority of our patients nothing happens we do very well as ophthalmologists if something's not quite right if there's diagnostic uncertainty then it's really important that it is documented appropriately and the medical expert just think about the medical expert who's sitting in their study and looking at, at the records, you need to have some sort of rationalisation for your thought processes and for your actions. So, for example, if somebody does have the contact lens related keratitis and you do think that they've developed HSK or, or, or some sort of hepatic epitheliopathy, then you, you need to document the fact that you've considered acanthamoeba, but you didn't think it was appropriate. You, you didn't think that it, it was correct. And that means that you haven't breached your duty of care. If you don't document it, whether you thought about it or not, then you breach your duty of care because you failed to consider acanthamoeba as a diagnosis. And if it comes to be that, you're in trouble. If you considered it and you got the answer wrong, then you're okay because you haven't breached your duty of care because a reasonable body of ophthalmologists would have considered acanthamoeba at, at that stage. So contemporaneous notes are key. Surgical complications. If you write in the record PC tear, and don't put anything else, then it's impossible to determine how it happened or when it happened. And you can face criticism. And certainly as a medical expert, it doesn't tell, tell me anything. It doesn't tell me what, what happened. And so it's very, very hard to defend. So if you have a surgical complication, make sure you defend it, the, make sure you document it really well. Write down exactly what happened. Write down the really measures you took. Also explain to the patient afterwards and document that you explained it because that's a vital thing as well. This is, this is about protecting the patient as well because they need to know this stuff, but also protecting yourself if there's future litigation. Mm. You're just picking up on what you said there about PC tear. PC tear isn't a recognised complication of cataract surgery. Do you think that having a posterior capsular rupture could ever be construed as negligence? Well, we, we get this an awful lot and... Um, I, I don't think it's negligent, but equally, it depends how it occurs and how it's managed postoperatively. And more often than not, it's not the actual posterior capsular rupture that is deemed to be negligent, but the management there, thereafter. And one of the big things that I do when I teach about this sort of stuff is, for God's sake, protect the cornea, because the cornea is absolutely vital. If you get a complication and the cornea decompensates, then you'll be facing allegations of inappropriate um, intraocular manipulation and direct trauma to the corneal endothelium. I see these allegations all, all the time. When you have a very dense cataract, 
and a shallow anterior chamber and the cornea decompensates, even if it's on the consent form, you can face allegations of breach of duty because you did not take measures to adequately protect the cornea. I'm a big believer in the soft shell technique and some people poo-poo it. Some people don't think it's a good thing, but I'm, I'm a believer that it is, is a good thing. And it shows that you are paying particular attention to the patient. And, you know, we, we're not robots. We, we have to tailor our surgery to the patient. And if somebody has a shallow anterior chamber or a very dense cataract, using the soft shell technique makes sense to try and protect the cornea. And then if, if the cornea does decompensate, then you've made efforts to try and protect the cornea. If you haven't made those efforts, then we're in a situation whereby one side may argue that the cornea was always going to decompensate. And the other side will argue, actually, if he hadn't, done if he had used the soft shell technique potentially the cornea would have remained clear and it's a very hard argument to fight against because you know i am a believer in the soft shell technique as a medical expert though, i've got to put forward two sides of the argument and so i do say when i write these reports that some people don't believe in it but there is a body of evidence out there and if you're one of those people who don't believe in it then you've got to have real justification and evidence when somebody comes asking the question well why didn't you do it do you think we underused as passive viscoelastics in the NHS? I do. I do think that, that we could use them more. Not for every single case. I think that there are specific cases where they are, um, you know, well well utilised. And you can see the difference when you use them. They do hang around because the, the, the cataract fragment sits in there and, and you can see it sitting there. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you use a cohesive and a bubble comes in, you can see the bubble go straight up onto the endothelium. So you know very well the, the, the cohesive has gone. So I think that you should use them in specific cases. And certainly if there's any elements of risk to the cornea, that's the time time to use it. Shallow anterior chamber, dense cataract, it just makes sense to use it. And what is the harm? What is the downside? Granted, there's a slight cost implication which you have to think about. It's quite minimal compared to the cost of a, an endothelial crataplasty if the cornea de- does de- decompensate. And you've just got to do the best for the patient. And if it was my mother with a shallow anterior chamber and dense cataract, I'd want them to use the soft gel technique. And this is what I, how I always consider my patients is that if it was my parent, how would I want them treated? And I think using the soft gel technique mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And it just takes a few moments longer to make sure you got the, you um, you aspirate the viscoelastic out. Um, but you know, it's just a few moments longer. And just be cautious about it to prevent a pressure spike, and you're fine. So I do think that we underutilize it. Yeah, there's that uncosted benefit of say an elderly patient with only one good seeing eye being able to recover their vision as quickly as possible after cataract surgery uh, whereas they would take a lot longer to recover if we only used a cohesive but you know we digress um i i was you know we've talked we we always hear about the huge financial burden of litigation on the nhs You've mentioned a few cases there, for example, bilateral blindness as a result of misdiagnosis of GCA. Would you be able to tell us how much does a misdiagnosis of GCA cost the NHS and what might be the financial payout to a patient who suffers from that? Well, there are ordinary damages and special damages. And the special damages are the the ones that relate to the effect on quality of life, whereas the ordinary damages are just literally how much you get paid for losing vision for one eye. You'd be surprised how little losing vision in one eye actually gets you. And there's a, 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 a judicial book that actually tells you the exact amount. And I can't remember the exact amount, but it's probably around the... 40,000, 47,000 marks, something like that. So it's not a large amount of money. Mm. But the special damages is key. And this is one of the reasons why paediatric ophthalmology cases pay out massively because the care costs go on forever and ever. So people claim for taxi fares because they can't drive. 
carers constantly, um, inability to read and do stuff around the house. And if you add up those care costs, we, we can be talking six six figures or, or like more. And by bilateral blindness, you imagine the, the impact on quality of life. It's They don't get as much as if you have you know a child who requires long-term care. But, you know, we are talking a good six six figure sums. Often the sum isn't disclosed either because it's a, it's, it's a confidential thing. But if they get to court and often we don't go, go to court because we make a, a financial decision that actually the cost of going to court will be greater than the cost of, of actually defending this. Mm. But I've got to tell you, in the end, even with settlements of, let's say, £112,000, the poor claimant, the poor patient gets very little of that and a lot of it goes to the, to the lawyers. The lawyers tend to win really? regardless. That's really sad, isn't it? It is. And I do, you know, in a, in a way, I, I wish there was some form of no-fault compensation that we could go, go, go into and it would make life a lot easier and a lot less confrontational um, if there was some sort of no-fault way to... To sort the things out, and I think the patients would probably get more than 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 the the confrontational and the and the adversarial way that we do things at the moment. Mm. You're making your work as a medical legal expert sound really interesting. Uh, you know, and what would you say to say a fellow consultant who might be considering going into the field? You know, how lucrative is it? Is it really worth your time? I think it takes time. It's not something to undertake lightly. You've got to also appreciate that you're putting your head above the parapet and in the noose. You can get criticism from the court. You can find yourself in front of the GMC if you do do a bad job. It's onerous and it has to be onerous because you're doing a duty for for the court. So you do have to do your due diligence, research things properly and make sure you're doing a proper job. If you do regular cases, I sort of field probably two cases a, a week then it can be a, a decent boost to your income. You can work from home, so you don't have to be anywhere else. So, so that's quite handy. But you do have to. There's you know strict turnarounds, and and the lawyers do do expect you to get things back to them. I find it absolutely fascinating. There is some emotional issues as well. In the you know it can be quite stressful to do this stuff, and it's always unpleasant criticizing colleagues as well. Because even though, you know, I, I, I always tell people, don't t- take it personally. And, you know, but for the grace of God, there go, go I. And, and, you know, some of the errors that happen, I can see would have happened to me as well. So I don't like the fact that we're criticising people. I don't like the fact that sometimes these things are unavoidable due to pressures of care. And yet I've, I, I'm in a, in a position of, of, of criticising people. So there's an emotional side to it as well. Um, but I would encourage people to go into it. It's fascinating. You learn an awful lot. It's part of my CPD because you've got you've got to research things so well that I've got to be up to date with all the guidance, all the management um, protocols, and make sure that I know my stuff in order to comment on it. So actually, for me, it's been a really valuable CPD tool because I'm learning lots and lots as I go 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 along, and really up to date and modern things as well. You know, that's really interesting. I can understand exactly what you're saying. Do you ever find yourself? making enemies with fellow colleagues i suppose the most important thing above all is just to do the right thing by the patient isn't it really yeah it is but you know sometimes it's it is difficult and you know when i i often tell people don't take it personally and yeah i I had a complaint against me and i took it completely personally you know i i i really really did everything i could for this patient and yet they still complained about me and they got a medical expert to say things and criticised my care and I was adamant that I hadn't done anything wrong and, you know, this was just 
unjust and unfair. And so I completely appreciate that people sometimes feel that. Um, we often have um, joint expert discussions, which are really quite interesting, whereby the claimant's, solicitor, the claimant's expert and the defendant's expert, and most of my work is, is defendant still, um, have to have a conference and discuss issues. And some of them can be quite interesting because you end up having a bit of a friendly scrap about issues. Um, and so you can go head to head with people. But, you know, we're, we're, we are professionals and we are doing things... No, neither side is trying to mislead well certainly from an expert perspective neither side is trying to mislead the other side and people have genuine views it's just when those genuine views are very polarised it, it, it can cause issues when you have joint, joint discussions so I don't like criticising people and certainly some of the responses from clinicians who have read my, my report it, it's not nice because they you know, mm-hmm. they they are understandably defensive, and I don't blame them because I was exactly the same when the when somebody criticised my care. Mm-hmm. Sadly, we make mistakes and errors, and a lot of the time the errors are, are, are clear cut, and we just got to learn from them and, and move on. But patients deserve compensation when things have gone wrong. But equally, we've got to protect the NHS and protect clinicians. And one of my big things is that I don't think we look after clinicians well enough when they have to fend off complaints and litigation. And I think it's a very stressful thing for people to have to go through. And, yeah, and, 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 and I think that we could do better at, at supporting them. Mm. Would you mind commenting on how lucrative being a medical expert is in terms of you know, payment for writing reports? Well, if you do a short form report, then which is just a three three page report, then it can be around the five hundred pounds mark um, the fee. And if you do a longer report, then you can charge on an hourly basis, or you get fees in the region of about two thousand pounds. But you've got to bear in mind that it will average out uh, over time because some of the cases you'll get one thousand pages of notes to go through with very complex issues, and you've got to do a detailed chronology of the whole thing. So it may take you. 10 plus hours to do that that report that full report and other cases it may take you a shorter bit of time but it does tend to average out one of the heartbreaking but most lucrative things is when the same error happens again and again and again because actually you can use the same background research the same background information in both cases and effectively cut and paste across because the same error happens again and you've already done the work based on that but it's not it's not easy work it is it is hard and it's supposed to be hard because you are you are acting for the court and you are making judgments on patients lives and also potentially criticizing or or supporting clinicians and if you're supporting clinicians and they aren't doing a good job and yet you're backing them up then ethically and morally you're you're you're, you're a bit tricky yeah. you know you mentioned just before about being better at defending clinicians What's your opinion on, say, indemnity insurance? Do you think that all clinicians or do you think trainees, for example, should all have a subscription to, say, for example, the MPS or the MDU? I think these um, indemnity companies, they they do more than just protect you against clinical negligence. And there are lots of added benefits. And my indemnity is up for renewal now, actually, so I'm actively looking at this. So they offer support with some of the most stressful things that you can face. And it comes back to the point that I just made about the stresses and strains of things. So they can help you with dealing with complaints. They can help you with dealing with GMC investigations. So there's another facet to what they do. So it's not just about clinical negligence. Certainly, if you're in private practice and some of your work is not covered by CNST Crown Indemnity, it's absolutely vital that you have appropriate care cover in place. And also make sure that you are honest with how much you actually cover. Because we, we, we sometimes see, I've, I've seen a couple of cases whereby 
the clinician hasn't declared all of their private practice and the indemnity company do cover, but they reduce it pro rata. So they effectively say, you know, you, you declared £120,000 of private practice income, but actually it was £200,000 of private practice income. So we're going to only cover you uh, two thirds of the, of the way. So it can be costly. So it's important you declare everything. I think it's really important we have appropriate cover. And, you know, there is an issue about the claims made and the occurrence um, cover, which I don't think people fully understand. Um, and I do think it's important you fully understand it so that you can get the appropriate co- cover in place and make sure you are covered if patients do litigate. I've got one final question for you, Mara, if that's okay. And you know, that's what pearls of wisdom would you have for a fellow ophthalmologist to either stay out of trouble and prevent complaints or negligence from occurring or how to respond if, you, if they do fall victim of being a, a, well, not a victim, but how to respond to a complaint? I think in, in response to your first question, it's be good at what you do. Uh, make sure that you are aware of all the guidelines. Make sure, particularly, you're aware of the local guidelines because it's indefensible if you don't follow your own local guidelines because inevitably they'll be disclosed when, if something happens. So make sure you're aware of them. Make sure that if something's not going to plan, that you document appropriately. And that means not going to plan surgically or not going to plan medically because you've got to document appropriately so somebody has an idea of what's going on. The patients who run into problems, it's easy to shy away from them and pass them on to your juniors when actually it should be the opposite and you should be grasping them and actually getting them in so you can mitigate things. If things don't go go to plan, make sure you're in early with an explanation of why and document clearly your thought processes in, in the notes so somebody later on can have a look and see. Early meetings with patients makes a big difference. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we send out duty of candor letters that often explain the errors and patients tend to take these immediately to a solicitor and ask them to take action. And if we have sent out a letter saying, we're sorry you lost vision because we did this, then it's very hard to defend against. I mean, sometimes we can defend against it. If you do get a complaint, don't take it personally. Cooperate fully. Never, ever, this goes without saying, but never, ever alter the notes because you turn a situation whereby the complaint is can be dealt with to a situation whereby you're before the GMC for altering notes. So never, ever alter notes because that is that is just a, a massive no-no make sure that you're compassionate with, with your patient engage with the complaint put forward your views and if you can engage a bit more i see some some clinicians just write comments saying i didn't do anything wrong this patient is 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 being unreasonable and you know i'm not prepared to to even entertain this complaint that's really really help you know it's really doesn't help at all and we, we just run into more problems, the positions become polarised. If you've got justifications for your actions, then back it up with some literature, make it a little case report, and that makes it a lot easier for people to understand exactly what's going on and exactly what happened. Colleagues, help each other. It's really easy. I often see people stabbing each other in the back and making offhand comments, such as, you know, when the patient leaves, just leaving the room, they say something like, oh, this is the third time he's done that, or I wouldn't have done that, or, oh, he's made a real hash job of that. Patients focus on that massively, and so be, be, be careful. Be careful of what you say when the patient's on the operating table because they pick up on everything and they often dictate it back, back to you. Be careful of covert recordings because patients are recording more, more and more. Now, that doesn't mean that we should stop them recording. Just be really good at what you do and make sure that you do things appropriately. Consent is becoming more and more of an issue, so it's important that we are 
fully frank with, with consent, and particularly if there are patient-specific features that you have to document. Only eyes, shallow interior chambers, dense cataract. You can't use a one-size-fits-all consent form for those sort of things, so make sure that you do, do, do things properly. But in the end, I'm afraid we're all going to face litigation at some stage. It's just the nature of the beast. It's going to get worse and worse. And we are operating with the sort of Damocles above our heads. It's just a matter of making processes whereby we can try and pick errors up early. And it's all about harm. If the patient doesn't come to harm, then you won't be sued because litigation is all about putting the patient back in the position they were in before the error or the problem happened. So if you end up with a good outcome, then you're okay. Mistakes are mistakes. We're all human. Just make sure you document it properly. So actually, a mistake doesn't have to be clinical negligence. Mm. Well, I couldn't agree with you more about the point you made about patient communication, particularly with regards to the operating table. I can remember vividly some very cringeworthy conversations that I've seen my colleagues have with, say, scrub nurses asking for equipment which isn't available and the, pandem- the pandemonium that then subsequently follows. And I just think to myself, what kind of confidence are we instilling in patients? So I think ultimately the patient is the judge and the jury and what they think is the only thing really that matters at the end of the day. So I completely agree with you with regards to that. Um, you mentioned about covert recordings. I know I said last question, but I'm just curious. Are covert recordings admissible in court? They are. There have been cases where, whereby patients have... Um, it's actually, there, there was a medical legal um, issue where, whereby a medical legal expert undertook a condition and prognosis report on a patient. So he interviewed the patient for the condition and prognosis and, and said lots of things in that um, clinical examination and the interview. And then when he produced the report, it was completely different. And the claimant uh, produced a recording of exactly what he said in the interview and used that in, in court. And and even though it's frowned upon, recording you without your knowledge or our consent is frowned upon, it is admissible in court. And I see it more and more frequently whereby relatives are recording things. And we don't really have an argument for them not to record. And I've got no problem with them recording because I hope I do a very good job of the consent process, for example. Hmm. But some of the transcripts I've seen are very, very cringeworthy. And certainly when patients come back and their relatives come to find out why they're counting fingers when they started off at 612, they are more and more having the, their iPhone in their pocket on, on record. And some of the discussions which are had are very cringeworthy. So you just got to be very, very cautious of that. I think it's going to happen more and more frequently. I often get asked mm. if a patient asks to record, can I refuse? And I just, I don't know the legal answer. But I think the answer is no, ethically and morally, because what you're trying to hide, you know, if the the whole point of, let's say, informed consent or even any consultation is to relay information to the patient. And if they have a tool that will help them understand more, as in playing it back later on, or helping their relatives understand more, playing it for, for the relatives, then I can't see any issue in them in them recording it. So it's a very hard argument against it. Just essentially just do a proper job. Now, we are all strapped for time. We may not have enough time to do a proper job, but you've got to do, do your best and, 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 try and try and do it. Yeah. I've got one final question. I promise this is the final question now. Do you think we're about to see an avalanche of medico-legal cases as a result of COVID? Yeah, this has been something that has been discussed at a very high level. And, um, and you may be, be, be aware that there, there was a move to try and uh, get a blanket amnesty effectively for clinical negligence during COVID. We're already seeing glaucoma delays and loss of vision due to COVID 
coming through and I have several cases on my books of exactly that thing. The risk stratification guidance we've received from the college helps, but often the risk stratification isn't, isn't enough and it's very, very hard to justify things because some high-risk cases are, are, are being delayed. Different trusts works in different ways and there wasn't a one-size-fits-all for it. So I do think that we got a lot of COVID um, delays co- coming through and I think glaucoma is going to be one of the major ones whereby people have lost vision because of delayed appointments. Um, how the court sees it hasn't been tested yet and whether we had that discussion earlier about the court not really caring if if you're in a busy clinic in a stressful environment we haven't really tested whether the covid issues will will mitigate our um our position to some degree uh, but certainly when we do the cases one of the questions nowadays is asked is did the covid pandemic have implications for this case and we have to put forward when delays are related to covid so it is something which will be considered but hasn't been tested in court yet we're quite lucky in that we haven't really as ophthalmologists we weren't really although some places in the country were we weren't really shifted to other high risk situations like ccu or something like that when 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 there was big big pressures but we have faced lots of delays and we are still playing catch up and i'm not sure how we will catch up we were stressed enough as it is um, with massive backlogs and delayed patients and COVID made it worse. So we are playing catch-up and we put ourselves at risk. We, our duty of care is to risk gratify patients and make sure that we try and mitigate those risks. But mitigation doesn't mean eradication. And I do think that there will still be some patients, and I'm seeing them on a weekly basis, who lose vision because of the COVID thing. And we've got to see whether whether that will protect us. One thing I would say is that it doesn't tend, that sort of situation, thankfully, doesn't tend to hit the consultant or an individual. It's more the trust itself that, that is effectively negligent and a breach of duty due to administrative things. Still very stressful and still very difficult, but thankfully it's not the individual consultant who is really in the, in, in the spotlight and being criticised. Sure. Well, Amar, thank you so much for all the advice and teaching and discussion that you've provided. I've learned so much and I'm sure the listeners have too. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for t- taking the time to listen to me.